Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. We want to welcome you to another service today, and specifically this series that we're in called Asking for a Friend. We all have questions, and I want it to be said loud and clear this morning that the church of Jesus is a safe place. This is a safe place to ask some of the biggest questions that you have. And today, as we move forward, we are going to take a look at the most controversial and defining figure in human history. Even though he was born in a small, obscure little town, even though he was born to a peasant mother, even though he never traveled more than 200 miles from his hometown, even though he never held public office or ever wrote a book, and even though he died at the age of 33, a criminal's death, Jesus Christ is inarguably the most important person in the human race. Amen? More songs have been sung to, more books have been written about, more paintings have been painted of Jesus than any other person in history. He is such a large, dominant personality throughout history that every single major religion in the world has had to try to figure out some way how to deal with him, how to address his teachings, how to address the claims that he made about himself. And, Just like Jesus has separated history into two groups, B.C. and A.D., this same Jesus claims that upon his return, he will separate humanity into two groups. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Characteristic of one group of people are those who loved Jesus, embraced Jesus, adored Jesus, worshipped Jesus, lived for Jesus. And the other group, what will characterize them is that they rebelled against Jesus, resisted Jesus, ignored Jesus, were indifferent to Jesus throughout their life. And according to Jesus himself, whatever group you find yourself in on that day will determine where your eternal destiny will be. And so I can't help but wonder this morning, as I look at this vast sea of people before me today, how many people in here will comprise each of those two groups? So what is it about Jesus that makes him so controversial What is it that makes him so polarizing that each person at some point has to draw a line when it comes to him and stand on one side or the other? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not a matter of whether or not he existed. His existence is a matter of historical accuracy. Both religious and secular historians would agree and testify to the existence of one that we call Jesus of Nazareth. It's not a matter of his existence. What's controversial and polarizing about Jesus as well is not a matter of his ideology. We know that people across the globe, when it comes to Jesus, they appreciate his stance on love and humility. 
They admired the fact that Jesus was one who looked out for the under-resourced, for the poor, for the oppressed, for those people who were marginalized and taken advantage of. They acknowledged that Jesus was a man of great morality, of honesty and integrity, and they appreciate that about him. The people across the globe would acknowledge how much they appreciate and admire the courage of Jesus to take head on the religious hypocrisy of his day. So if it's not a matter of existence, if it's not a matter of his ideology that he came to embody when he walked this earth, What is it that's so polarizing? What is it so controversial about this one that we call Jesus? Here's what it is. It is 100% absolutely about the claims Jesus made about himself. Because Jesus made it known to anyone and everyone who would listen to him that he saw himself as unique, different, from the other billions of human beings who had ever walked planet Earth. And he made claims about his uniqueness. He claimed to be God in human form. He claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world, who would be the single catalyst to restore broken fellowship, broken relationship from a holy God to unholy man. Jesus claimed that he and he alone was worthy of mankind's devotion and worship. And so it's these incredible claims that Jesus made about himself that has people freaking out when it comes to who is Jesus. It's what makes them stand in one camp or the other. The religious people in Jesus' day did not like the claims that Jesus was making about himself so much that they wanted to stone him. Listen to what we read in John 10, 33. The religious leaders say, we are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. It's what you're saying about yourself. It's the claims that you're making. It's the identity you're trying to convince us of, of who you are. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Some people say Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did. And that's exactly why they were wanting to stone him. Here's what Jesus said in John 14, 6. He becomes more clear about it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice he didn't say I am a way or a truth or a form of life. He said the, singular, And exclusive. Only through me. That's a very exclusive claim. Then in John 14, 9, just a few verses later, here's what Jesus says. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, if you've seen me, you know what God is like. That's a very bold statement. And could Jesus be any more clear about his identity than when he said in John 8, 23? He says, you were of this world. I am not of this world. In other words, I didn't have my origins here like the rest of y'all. And he says here, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. 
It's claims like that that make it absolutely impossible for human beings to stand neutral when it comes to your view of Jesus. And so for thousands of years, people have been responding to Jesus and his claims in different ways. Those people who are offended and outraged by Jesus' claims would be in the anti-Jesus camp. These are people who would tell you that because he claims to be exclusively the way to heaven, there's no other way that that's narrow, that that's bigoted, and that is intolerant. And at surface level, when you hear someone make that claim that I am the way, there's only one way and it's through me, that I am the truth, That all truth emanates from me, and I am the life. If you want the hope of life, you've got to come through me. That for someone to say that smacks of arrogance. But what if Jesus said those things, not out of arrogance, but out of love and compassion and truth? Because if what he said about himself is true, then knowing that piece of information is the single most important thing that any human being could ever grasp and take hold of in their entire life. And I guess what I'm really wondering today is this question. Who do you say Jesus is? I'm not asking you if you own a Bible. I'm not asking you if you pray. I'm not asking you if you attend church. I'm not even asking you if you believe in God. Who do you say Jesus is? So here's what I want you to do. In our remaining time, I want you to put on your thinking cap, okay? And I want to try to reason with you a little bit. Because when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, there are only Three inescapable possibilities about who he is. The late C.S. Lewis, who many of you know, you've read his works, he described these three possibilities as being the great trilemma. I want you to listen to C.S. Lewis's words about Jesus and listen to the wisdom, to the reason he's trying to point us to about the decision we have to make about this man. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. Well, what is this foolish thing that people often say about Jesus that we hear in our world? Here's what they say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You ever heard anybody say that? Yeah, he was a great moral teacher, had a lot of profound things to say. He was a man of integrity and virtue, but I'm not ready to believe that he was God in the flesh. That, says Lewis, is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man, a man who was just like the rest of us, nothing special, nothing unique, and said the the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So let's explore this. Let's tease this out a little bit, okay? Was Jesus just this huge liar? Was he this great con artist? Was he like the Bernie Madoff of his day and involved in a faith Ponzi scheme, making claims and promises that he knew in and of himself were false and that he could never deliver on? Well, when you think through that theory, there's some real problems with that. Because again, the vast majority of the world's population would acknowledge Jesus, what did we say? As a good moral teacher. So would a man who is so moral and so virtuous go around spreading these premeditated lies about himself knowing that they were not true? Again, how could you say he was a great moral teacher if he went around lying saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God? How could you say that Jesus even had a shred of integrity and morality about him if he went around recruiting followers, telling them to abandon their career, risk arrest, and even risk their own death just so they could follow him if he knew all along he was a phony and was not who he claimed to be. And if he was lying, would he himself be willing to be mocked, ridiculed, spat on, arrested, beaten, scourged, and ultimately crucified. Here's what I know about human beings. The threat of pain and the threat of death has an amazing way of flushing out liars because people don't die for a lie. However, here's what Jesus said in John 18, 37. The reason I was born, here it is, fellas, he says, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. So when you add up all the facts, it's not really reasonable to conclude that Jesus was a liar. So what about the second possibility that C.S. Lewis points us to? Was Jesus maybe just some sort of self-deluded lunatic? Now, if that was true... There would be these patterns, these behaviors in Jesus' life that we could look to that would bear witness to the fact of whether or not he was suffering from some sort of mental disorder, right? Now listen to me, folks. Experts in psychology, experts in psychiatry have poured over the record and the testimony of Jesus' life. And they have went through it with a fine-tooth comb, and they've not come up with one shred of evidence that Jesus' behavior was psychotic at all. Rather, on the flip side, here's what they conclude. When they look at Jesus' life, they say that he was a picture of mental, relational, and psychological health. You see, when someone is disturbed psychologically, there's certain telltale signs of that in their life, right? There's certain things that you can observe. Maybe they get really easily angered about things that they shouldn't be angered about. 
Or they're extremely paranoid or anxious when there's no reason to be paranoid or anxious. Or they deal with these inappropriate bouts of depression when there's nothing to be depressed about, right? But Jesus shows us that he appropriately responds with the right appropriate emotions at the appropriate times in his life. When his good friend Lazarus dies, do you remember what Jesus does? What's he do? Beside raise him from the dead, what does he do? He weeps. Is it appropriate to die or to weep when someone you love dies? Yes. When Jesus saw injustice of the rulers of the day oppressing people, it filled him with a holy indignation and it angered him. How many of you in here get angered when you see injustice or people wrongfully oppressed? Anybody? Yeah, that's an appropriate emotion. He didn't let trite things really bother him. And even though Jesus loved every person, he didn't let the the needs of all these people simply overwhelm him, did he? And even though Jesus had a huge following, and lots of people who adored him and would follow him and listen to him, we would never say that Jesus was an egomaniac. And Jesus was so aware, so in tune with his inner self, That when all the demands started pressing in on him, do you remember what Jesus did? He would say from time to time, listen, fellows, we got to get away and we've got to relax, retreat, or rest. Because he was so in tune with his inner self and the demands and the tolls that ministry was taking on his body. So again, the evidence is right there to suggest that Jesus was not a raving lunatic. So you know what that leaves us with? That leaves us with our very last option, that he was who he said he was, that he was God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. So let's think through for a moment this option, okay? If Jesus was indeed the Son of God, there should be some overwhelming evidence to point us to that fact, right? I mean, we're called to have faith as followers of Christ, but we're not called to have blind faith, right? There's some things we should be able to point to and say, that's why I believe, and that's why I believe, and that's why I believe. So let's take a moment and just look at some of the reasons that we can look to and see why his claim to be God is compelling and true. One reason is because of his life of perfection. That Jesus Christ, unlike any other human being who has ever lived, lived a life without sin. Here's what the author of Hebrews has to say about the life of Jesus. He says here, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one, that unique one, that one who came through space and time to planet Earth, who has been tempted in every way, just like we are, yet he did not sin. How do we know this to be true? Here's how I know it to be true. Because if any of you, if I were to say, is there anybody in this room today who has never sinned, You've lived a life completely in accordance with the ways and the laws and the virtues of God Almighty as outlined for the human race. And if any of you dared raise your hand, here's all I would have to do. Give me the names of your family members and your friends, and in about five minutes after being on the phone with them, we would have a line from here out the door saying, I'm going to refute that claim that they are perfect. Is there anybody that disagrees with that? I would have my line, you would have your line, we would all have a line of people who would say, no, I know that they're a sinner, here's why. Right? But one time, 
In John 8, 46, Jesus throws out a challenge to his critics. Jesus says to this group of anti-Jesus religious leaders, here's what he says. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? How many of you would feel comfortable throwing that question out in here today about yourself? Or your spouse, your family members, right? None of us. So here's what Jesus is saying. Get a free shot, boys. Give it all you got. Look at everything I've said. Look at everything I've done. Look at the way I've lived. You show me if there's anything I've ever done that according to God's law could be declared a sin. And you know what the response was? Silence. Not a word. And then you've got Jesus' own followers. Men who had lived with him for for three years, walked with him, talked with him, saw him at play, saw him in the public scene and the private scene, saw him when he was tired, saw him when he was hungry, saw him whenever he was pressed in by the multitudes. And you know what their testimony was? We never saw him sin. These are his closest, most intimate followers. Listen to what John says, 1 John 3, 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. John's able to say that after spending three years of intimate time with Jesus. Peter, you know Peter, the rock, Cephas, right? Here's what he said about Jesus. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Let me give you a little pointer here, okay? You go poking around in the lives of other great religious leaders of the world, men who claim they are a way, if not the way to God, guys like Muhammad of Islam, guys like Siddhartha Gautama of Buddhism, known as the great Buddha, Mahatma Gandhi, Joseph Smith of Mormonism, You go peeking behind the curtain into the private lives of these men and you are going to be shocked at some of the things that you saw taking place that proves they were not the paragons of virtues that they claim to be or that their followers claim because history tells a different story. But you put Jesus through the test. You peek behind the curtain in his life. You go poking around about Jesus. Here's what you'll find. Not a single spot. Not a single stain on his character. So another piece of compelling evidence we can look at, not just his life of perfection, but we can look at the prophetic fulfillment of Jesus, the fulfilled prophecies. You see, in the Old Testament, we find some 300 prophecies outlined about this is what to look for in the coming promised Messiah. This is how you can know that they are the real deal. And they give details about like where he would be born, the circumstances around his birth, his ancestry and lineage, the kind of death he would die, the promise that he would be raised to life after dying. It was a unique fingerprint that would only be found in one unique person who walked the earth. And Jesus' fingerprint matched it to a T. One of the prophecies around the coming Messiah was written by the prophet Isaiah. It's a prophecy we're very familiar with from Isaiah chapter 53. Here's what he says. But he, meaning the promised one, the awaited one, the the Messiah, the anointed one, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That prophecy was written 700 years before the very birth of Jesus himself. And it outlines in haunting language the kind of death that the Messiah would die. And as you continue reading through Isaiah, he shares some other details. That the Messiah would be put on trial. That he'd be taken away. That upon the death of the Savior of the world, his body, his lifeless body, would be placed in the tomb of a rich man. That's very specific. And yet we read in the pages of the New Testament that upon Jesus' death on the cross and his disciples tenderly take his body down, that a very affluent, wealthy man of the day, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, said, you can use the tomb that I own, that I had carved for myself, you can use it for the body of Jesus. In fact, legend has it that somebody asked Joseph of Arimathea, why would you give to Jesus' followers your tomb for the body of Jesus, the tomb that you had made for yourself? And the response was, it was no big deal. He was only using it for the weekend. That was just to see if you were paying attention, okay? Here's what I'm telling you, folks. People who have taken the time to seriously study and critique all the prophetic writings about the coming one have come to the same conclusion, that Jesus was the unique Messiah whose fingerprint matched everything that was written about him in the Old Testament. So we've got a life of perfection, prophetic fulfillment. We've also got something else, his post-resurrection appearances. See, don't go thinking that after Jesus rose from the dead that he appeared to maybe just two or three people or a handful. No, Scripture says that multitudes of people saw him, heard him, touched him, sometimes up to 500 people at once. Listen to Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 15. After that, meaning after his resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 of his brothers and sisters at the same time. In other words, a large group. You fill this room with a, maybe 100 more people and have Jesus show up, that's about how many people saw Jesus alive just in one time after his resurrection. And listen to what Paul says. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He's saying not everybody that saw Jesus out of that 500 is still alive, but there's some people who are still alive today. You can go ask them. I'll give you their address. You can go knock on their door and say, did you see Jesus? They'd say, yep. Now, here's the interesting thing. Some skeptics want to try to promote this idea that the followers of Jesus, because they so much wanted him to be alive, that they had this kind of a group hallucination where they were like, did you see that? Yeah, I saw that. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw it. But it wasn't really real, but it was some sort of like group hallucination that they shared together. Let me tell you something, folks. This whole idea has been investigated and hallucinations, I don't know whether you know this or not, they are not group events. Unless you're at Woodstock with a bong and some mushrooms, right? Maybe then. But a hallucination is very much an individual event. It's not a shared event, not something we experience together. It would be like me uh, looking down and I'd say, Tracy, did you enjoy the dream I had last night? And you'd be like, 
what dream? I was having my own dream, right? No, no, do you remember the dream I had? No, because your dreams are individual. My dreams are individual, okay? So, one expert actually said that 500 people sharing the same hallucination would be even a greater miracle than the resurrection itself, right? This is not a shared event. And I want you to think about this, folks. Jesus' followers had been reluctant believers. When they saw him die on that cross, something died in them. They were now afraid. They were now scared. They were now dejected, defeated, beside themselves. Thomas himself, do you remember what he said? He was a skeptic, and he appeared to the group who claimed that they saw Jesus. And Thomas said, you know, I know I loved him like you loved him. There's nobody more that would want him alive than I'm alive. And I don't care what you tell me, I don't care what you saw, until I put my hands in his wounds, I will not believe. And yet it was after they saw him, and they touched his flesh, and they heard that voice that they had heard a thousand times before. And they were able to feel his loving touch on them. They believed. And these followers who'd once been scared and timid and frightened were now bold and aggressive and dangerous with the message they had to proclaim to the world. And it was a dangerous message because every one of the 12 followers of Jesus who went around telling their testimony that they saw his life, they saw his death, and they saw him rise again, every single one of them, except for one, except for John, they died a martyr's death, meaning they were killed because of their strong faith and proclamation and unrelentless proclaiming that Jesus was who he said he was. They died because of that. And again, friends, people do not give their lives for a lie. So we've got this overwhelming evidence, a life of perfection, the prophetic mystery of fulfillment of prophecy. You got his post-resurrection appearance, more than once to hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people, and the transformed lives of his followers. You know what you've got there? You've got an airtight, compelling, rock-solid, intense case that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And that, friends, is something that I would give my life to, that I would bank my eternity on, and I have. My question for every single person this morning is this. Who do you say Jesus is? Can you say as Thomas did after his hands went into the wounds of Jesus? Can you say this morning as he said, my Lord and my God? Today, if you've never made that declaration of faith, Today, if the pieces of the puzzle came together, today, if through the testimony of Scripture, through examining Jesus' life, through looking at some of the prophecies, 
through looking at the testimony of his followers, through looking at what they were willing to suffer and go through because they were sold out and convicted to the core that their leader was who he said he was. If today you are ready to identify with the same Jesus and to call him your Lord and your God and to make sure on that day when you meet him that you are in the right group, the, light, the, right, the group that accepted Jesus, embraced Jesus, loved Jesus, worshiped Jesus, lived for Jesus, today, if that's your desire, then I'm gonna ask you at our time of invitation to come forward and meet me in the back porch as we're preparing for a few baptisms yet this morning. So why don't you stand with me right now and let's have a word of prayer, okay? Father, thank you that your word gives us everything that we need to know about the claims of this one called Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you don't call us to just a blind faith where, where we believe without any evidence, but that the evidence around us is so compelling, so overwhelming, so convincing about what it is we see in him, what we've experienced about new life through him. So, Lord, I pray today that the one fundamental question people leave today having answered in their heart of hearts is the question of who do I say Jesus is? And if that answer is not God in the flesh, my Savior, my friend, my Lord, the judge of all mankind, then it's the wrong answer. I pray, Lord, that if someone today needs to clothe themselves with Christ, that your spirit will convict them of their need for him and they'll respond appropriately at this time, Father. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for sending the promised one in whom we have our hope and salvation. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.